Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore the importance of precision in language, in particular for journalists and other content creators seeking to inform and contextualize, and how lack of precision can contribute to polarization, misinformation, and echo chambers. We discuss the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and how journalists navigated language and word use to communicate what was happening as the story unfolded. My guest is Pamela Mejia, head of research at the Berkeley Media Studies Group, or BMSG. Let's start by talking about um, the concept of precision in journalism and content creation. Why is something like precision so important uh, with language? The space that I occupy is as a media researcher. So Over the last 11 years that I've been at Berkeley Media Studies Group, um, the work I've been focused on has been um, identifying media narratives around a lot of different public health and social justice issues um, from, you know, violence prevention to maybe more traditional public health topics like tobacco control to things like childhood trauma and um, racial and health equity in news coverage. Because, you know, of course, we know, um, sure, listeners to this podcast know better than anyone that the news plays such a huge role in setting the agenda and shaping both what we're thinking and talking about and what we're not thinking and talking about. And and I, I often joke that since 2016, I have to do a lot less work to convince people that news and media coverage matters. I got to jump in and say, that's so true. Before that, everyone's like, what are you talking about? And then, oh, is this what you're, yeah, this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> I had a slide that I used to have to share in my PowerPoints, you know, my, my, my slide decks that uh, was why the news matters. And it used to take me a couple of minutes to walk through it. And now most times you start seeing the nods. Yes. You know, in the audience or as it is on the Zoom screen pretty quickly. And I'm like, yeah, we got that. Let's let's move on. You know? so just a, a real time change. In, yep, in, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> I'm kind of focused on identifying what narratives are, uh, who's part of the store of news stories, who's left out, what images are conveyed, how solutions and responsibility are characterized, how harmful frames and stereotypes are um, reinforced or rebutted, et cetera. That all feeds into the training and the technical assistance work that we do to, to equip people to more effectively use the media um, to enact and uh, advance policy change. So my answer is informed by about 11 years of looking at news about different issue areas and finding that across the board, one of the key concerns that advocates in a lot of different issues have is that there's a lack of precision in language around their issues. The best example I maybe can think of is is in violence prevention, certainly. Um, Much of the work that I've done over the years has been looking at um, how domestic and sexual violence across the lifespan is characterized in news coverage. And one of the key uh, concerns that people working in the prevention and and survivor support spaces have is that the language can be very imprecise. And in sexual violence, I think we can all imagine uh, examples that we've seen of stories about a teacher who had sex with a student or a child who performed oral sex on an adult or a person who had an affair with an underage prostitute. So language that is very uh, imprecise and is often imprecise uh, as as part of an effort to uh, protect the sensibilities of the reader or the viewer or to make the subject uh, a little less uncomfortable. But what it can do in the case of, for instance, violence prevention is it can minimize the truth of what happened, in this case, the violation of what happened. It can make it harder for people to see the realities of the violation, the harm, and the abuse and exploitation that's occurred. Right. So if you say something like underaged woman or relationship or perform, those are 
safer words, but what is an underage woman but a child? When you say child, that's more precise. And yes, that's upsetting, but you know what? We got to deal with it and fix it. And if you say relationship, is it really possible for an older man to have a relationship with a child? in that way. And that whole point you make about sensibilities, it didn't come from anything nefarious. It came from, oh, this is so upsetting that let's just soft pedal it. But that's actually causing us to not really be able to deal with it. Absolutely. And some years ago, it was in the aftermath of a fairly significant um, sexual assault of a minor case. There was an article on the editorial pages of the New York Times that was actually about their struggles internally as the paper of record with how to, quote, call a rape a rape because of the fact that they recognized that the way that they were characterizing sexual harassment, abuse, and assault was really um, soft peddling and imprecise and, and had a lot of potentially really deleterious effects, but that they were struggling also with the idea of what are we going to do if our readers just completely turn away or shut down from this? Are we going to be able to convey any information if people are so put off just by the, the discomfort of the words that they're reading or that they're seeing that they don't even finish the story? They don't even go past the headlines. So what did they come to uh, after grappling with that? They ended up working with some folks that I think that's called the Judicial Language Project, which was a number of, of legal professionals who were working uh, at trying to get more accurate and precise language introduced into stories about sexual um, harassment, abuse, and assault. New York Times had decided to go with a more precise approach um, with the recognition that there was potential for discomfort and there was potential for readers to be very put off by what they were reading. I thought that was um, just a, a really interesting example of, of one of the times when journalists are confronting the, the inner workings of their own industries and their own processes that can, that can lead to these levels of imprecision and also trying to do their best work and do the best job that they can to acknowledge those imprecisions and also think about how to deal with them in a way that honors the truth of what they're writing and that also um, can stay in some way accessible to readers or to news consumers, because that is, you know, I know a very real concern. I think this was in the pre-era where things like content warnings went, might have been more common. So it may be a less an example now. Yeah, I got to say, though, that um, when you think about our behavior in the past four years, when Donald Trump started saying, you know, grab her by the, you know, mm -hmm. he said it and then people repeated it on the news and everyone was like, oh, how could you say that? Well, we're just quoting, you know, like, so the, I think there still is that, um, you know, when we bring it to the attention or try to discuss it, there is this sort of shoot the messenger attitude rather than really, uh, okay, we got to, again, deal with this. I would argue that that sentiment still exists in some audiences not feeling comfortable maybe even going there, and thus news outlets trying to figure out how to navigate that. And then this gets into, uh, you know, so many different areas. Uh, Kelly McBride, who's the public editor at NPR, you know, wrote that great article for Pointer about the phrase unarmed black man, something that maybe we don't even realize is problematic if we're not black until someone points out, why do you have to qualify that a black man is unarmed? You don't say unarmed white man, you say white man, you say man, really. So um, breaking down, not only being precise, but understanding the motivations behind why you're using the phrases that you're using uh, can be really important as well. One of the things that I'm doing, because I, as I often joke, I don't have hobbies, I just have this. <laughs> I, um, I've been compiling a spreadsheet, um, different language guides that uh, folks are putting out for both for reporters and for writers and advocates. I think it's really compelling. I'm, I'm interested in finally, when I have a little bit of time sitting down with it and, and trying to do some some synthesis across and get to kind of what, what are we all saying we should do and what are some of the specific nuances of different situations. I became aware of that article by, by Kelly McBride because 
but I'm always looking for when people have really good explanations of why certain phrases and frames should be avoided or should be used. I really appreciated the article, something that we're so used to reading now. From some of the conversations I've been having also with with folks like journalists and with people doing work around um, changing narratives on police uh, violence, the idea had been that this was a phrase or a frame that would sort of set the tone for readers and the frame for readers right from the beginning. We're not in a good, bad victim frame. It was an attempt to kind of circumvent the, well, what was that person doing wrong? Right. Yeah, which is the frame of a white person. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's one of those things when you know better, you do better. Because I remember when people started using that phrase or recommending the use of phrases like that back in news coverage back in like the early to mid 2000s, because the idea was that this was going to help us break out of the, well, what did he or she do to deserve it frame? And then now we've moved to a place where we're, we're even challenging that. We're saying, why is that our first assumption that that's what we need to do is placate white audiences or counter that frame? from the very beginning. Why is that the, do- the dominant frame that we're going with as we're reporting on this tragedy and this murder that's been committed? You make a great point there about how language also evolves. And so, you know, oh, this is the word or phrase to use now. Actually, not that anymore because it now has these connotations. Now it's this word or phrase or now it's this, con- you know, so I think that's also an important thing to acknowledge. You know, if we read something that was done a while ago, the intention of the writer or the content creator may not have been what we assumed to be the intention now if somebody had created it today, but language has evolved. And uh, one, maybe it's evolved for us to understand better that we have been doing it wrong or being biased in ways we didn't know. But sometimes it evolves just like that was what we were supposed to use then. This is what we've been asked to use now. And and so also navigating that context and not necessarily vilifying someone who might have used a phrase that's no longer in vogue because the world has shifted. Exactly. Exactly. I appreciate this conversation and this shift because I do think it represents an attempt to get past some of the, as you say, white person framing of violence and harm against black and brown people, against people, but black and brown people in particular, where the idea is that one must prove oneself to be a a good victim or worthy of not being shot by the police. Um, And I think as we can move further from that frame, the idea that even as our journalistic practice can move us further from that frame, the better we're going to be doing. Yeah. So that that kind of leads me right into this amazing article that you just wrote, where you basically pulled data from LexisNexis to see how how reporters were talking about the January 6th insurrection. And I use the word insurrection deliberately. I've made a choice based on factors that I think were very journalistically come by, but we'll get to that. I'm really fascinated by the idea of taking a look at the coverage in its totality and how how it was described. So can you talk a little bit about what led you to want to do that and what you discovered? What happened as often happens for, for me is I got curious and I got annoyed simultaneously. We've all been very frustrated and, and, and had a lot of uh, feelings uh, in the last few years, especially when I see things in the media that make me frustrated. I try to figure out whether what I'm seeing is a pattern of some sort. And then if it is a pattern of some sort, is there a way that I can kind of amplify or help lift up that pattern Um, in a way that might help others who are feeling frustrated, but are maybe better positioned to do something about it. It can be really helpful for folks to have something then, some data to point to, if they're trying to make the case in their own spaces and spheres of influence for some kind of change. So one example that prior to this was that I had gotten very curious about officer-involved shootings 
I discovered that there was a Washington Post database, it's crowdsourced, that documents all officer-involved shootings from around the country. And I used a year and a half of data from California, and I searched for each name of each uh, victim. And I found that about one-third of all uh, officer-involved shootings in California generated no news coverage. Um, and of those, the majority of the people whose, whose murders were not reported, they were identified in the database as being either uh, Black or Latinx and as being men. I've been able to share that data with folks who are doing work in California and Sacramento and elsewhere um, around making the case to local uh, editorial boards, you know, in work with journalists and, and even in conversations around things like city level policy in a few places around California on how how officer-involved shootings are being reported uh, at the city level and how they're being uh, commemorated um, or, or discussed. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with researcher Pamela Mejia about language use during the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and in other journalistic content. To so bring it to January 6th, so like everybody else, I was sitting glued to my sofa, glued to my TV all afternoon on January 6th with my, um, my husband and my daughter. One of the things that I most remember was that a lot of the circles of folks that I'm in who are interested in and, and active around media research and content analysis and things, some of the, the listservs and, and Twitter threads and things that I follow we're talking about sort of the, the language of how the insurrection was being characterized. And there was already, even as early as that afternoon, uh, I was starting to see bubbling up of, you know, if these rioters had been Black, they would be being called rioters rather than protesters or demonstrators, or if they were Black, there would already be police at the scene. And there would already be, you know, narratives about how they were like violent and dangerous. But because these rioters were primarily white, they were receiving a very different kind of media treatment. And one of the most interesting things that I saw, and I, I can't remember where the Twitter thread was from, was a brief conversation just around people talking about calling it a riot uh, or a, uh, an insurrection. We were watching, I think it was like CNN, 5 p.m., 6 p.m. in the afternoon Pacific time. So things have been going on for some time. And there was a CNN reporter who was walking in front of where everything was happening and the microphone in his hand. And he was saying, you know, and this riot and one of the demonstrators, and I've never been able to find this clip. I wish I could, stopped him and almost tried to grab him. He was holding a flag and he said, this isn't a riot. This isn't a riot. Don't call this a riot. That was when I really started thinking, okay, there's a lot of power in the way that this event is being framed, even for the people who are engaged in it. And mm -hmm. that I was seeing in real time, CNN start to change in real time, the way that they were describing what was happening from a protest or a pro-Trump demonstration to a riot, to an insurrection by seven or 8 p.m. Pacific time, felt like something that was worth noting. And I was really curious, but I also knew, hey, all of the media that we consume now can be very siloed by our own personal preferences. I'm watching CNN, but there are people who would be maybe watching other channels or, or paying attention to other things. So they might be learning and seeing different things. So I was really curious to know if that shift was happening uh, in other spaces, just to see whether this thread that was coming up in some of the social justice and media uh, progressive communication spaces that I follow, if that had really penetrated beyond kind of my Bay Area media bubble. And so that was what really led me to go, and I, I dove into LexisNexis, which is a, a you know an archive for anyone not familiar with of news outlets 
thousands and thousands of them. We use it a lot for my work. And I just tried to discern whether stories used from that day, just from January 6th, used the phrase uh, protest or demonstration and not any other term. Stories that used phrases like a coup, an insurrection, a riot, or a mob, and not any other kind of term, or any stories that maybe used both. What I found was that only about one-fifth of stories really only used terms like coup or insurrection or riot, whereas a fully 40% continued throughout the day to refer to the story only as a protest or a demonstration, which can really minimize, I think, what happened. I think that there's damage, honestly, in using phrases like a protest or a demonstration, because I think it makes it easier for people to then draw connections to legitimate protests against things like racial injustice, for instance, the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, and so I think it's really important to be clear and distinct in the ways that we refer to the events that happened on January 6th and the attempted overthrow of the government um, by insurrectionists. That is so fascinating and so telling too. And I can understand, like I'm just picturing, I used to be a journalist. I can picture myself in the newsroom clearly at the beginning of the day. It seemed to start out as a protest, a demonstration. And that's how I would have referred to it. But as soon as doors started, glass started getting broken, that narrative has to shift. You know, that, that it's not just a protest anymore. There's, there's something far more insidious and violent going on. And in my mind, as a journalist, you have to adjust. You have to trust what's in front of your eyes. And I really appreciate when people write those, what if this had happened in another country? How would we cover it? Because clearly, then you really get the unbiased view. You really get the, oh, if we were detached from it, clearly we'd be calling it a coup immediately, right? And then the other aspect of it that I find fascinating is to go back to your point about when the, the rioter grabbed the journalist and said, this is not a riot, that that desire to, to frame the coverage. And there is a really powerful strain, as we know, in this country of people who absolutely disagree with what we're saying and they think they're just as right as we think we are. And so, you know, trying to navigate telling the truthful story, providing the actual context uh, in the face of that pressure, which is not small. I just really wanted to thank you for sort of bringing it forward and framing it in that way, because I think journalists are doing their best, uh, especially now under incredibly constrained circumstances. And anecdotally, I haven't done a follow up, although I think I will now because I can't stop myself. I think I think people turned pretty rapidly. I mean, I think journalists it seemed like most outlets did a really good job of pivoting on that. As I said, I saw it happening in real time that day. But since then, I really do feel like the conversations around um, what happened on that day and the aftermath of the Trump administration have really been very good about holding power to account, about naming things in very specific and concrete ways. It just um, it, it feels like we're seeing a real change. Yeah, I really agree. And I think, you know, to 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 sort of reiterate the point quickly that, you know, over the course of the day, as events unfolded, the situation went from demonstration, protest, riot, insurrection, right? And you have to evolve with what is happening in front of you. And I love that you mentioned sort of, one, you mentioned international outlets and how they were kind of clued in way before we were, which I, of course, but awesome to, to know. And two, that, uh, you know, there's the day of coverage and then there's the ensuing coverage, you know, in the days, weeks, and months following. And I really appreciate your point that, that news outlets are, you know, based on journalistic you know, due diligence 
and what these terms mean. They all have definitions. Demonstration has a definition. Protest, riot, insurrection have definitions. Coup has a definition. And matching up what occurred with the definition of these words and, and using precision to tell the story, whether or not someone is happy with that. And it's been framed, of course, unfortunately, as a lot of things are nowadays, as something partisan. But I do believe that the journalists who are using the terms coup, insurrection, can defend their their writing, can defend their their coverage because of this precision. Very much agreed. That leads me into this idea of context. And so something like this happens, January 6th happens. Certainly it doesn't happen in a vacuum. And certainly we have historical U.S. and other international moments to point to and how we looked at those and what they meant. I think the context that chilled me or that I appreciated the most was even during the Civil War, the Confederate flag didn't make it to the Capitol. That context, that factoid chilled me, but also it was the it was the factoid that helped me understand the gravity of what was occurring the most. That's a phenomenal point. And, and you mentioned chills. And, and when you said that, I've, I've heard that remark before. And I, my grandmother used to say, it's the mouse running over your grave kind of thing. My whole little back just had a little shiver just thinking about it because it is, as you say, it's a, it's a shocking piece of context. At BMSG, we talk a lot about news stories as the distinction between portraits and landscapes. A lot of stories are kind of like portraits. They zero in on one particular person or incident, and they, they don't really provide a whole lot else about the landscape, right? The world in which that person is situated. A clear example would be violence reporting, where our research and, and any of other research over the last 20 to 30 years of news, news analysis has shown that about 80% of stories about most topics and most particularly violent stories tend to be framed like portraits. They are very focused on the details of isolated incidences, you know, who was shot where, when, and you know, are they in custody now? And who were the police looking for? And then only about 20% of stories across issues are framed maybe more like landscapes. So they might talk about an individual person or an individual case or incident, but they also situate that person in some way in the, the broader landscape of the world that they're in. So they provide data or other anecdotes or other perspectives and insights that can give some context and some background to not just a shooting took place, but where did the shooting take place? And what happened around it and how often has this been happening and what is the city doing about it's not always just violence either i should add it's also you know the kid who overcame adversity to graduate top of his class that said in the case of january 6th i haven't coded i haven't you know really analyzed stories from that perspective but it did strike me anecdotally and looking back that while there was a lot of content and there was a lot of coverage yeah, on that day and the following that was focused on sort of the details of the day itself, the broken windows, the, you know, the QAnon shaman, et cetera, some context was already starting to appear in the form of not only news and, and context setting around Donald Trump, but also uh, around QAnon, around the role of social media mobilization, things like travel during the pandemic. So there were, there were lots of different pieces of context that seemed like they were rising to the surface immediately, even in stories, even from that day, that by definition also had to focus on things like the details of the smashed windows, the, you know, feet on uh, Pelosi's desk, the, you know, the flag at the Capitol, the Confederate flag at the Capitol, et cetera. Um, so I think that it's, at least in the case of the 
the insurrection, I feel like context was introduced into news stories very, very quickly and has continued to stay in the headlines. Although now I am noticing a little bit and, and I don't know how documentable this is, but it does seem a little bit now that like a lot of the stories I'm seeing in the current moment are very much focused on the legal aftermath. So they, again, are very now narrowly focused on, you know, the QAnon shaman, the lawyer who's defending X and such, you know, the, the claims that people have, you know, um, mental health issues from overexposure to, to right-wing media, you know, things like that. So it does sort of feel like we're, we're in a little bit of a moment where now the focus is now shifted kind of in a strange way to very hyper individually focused. And there is kind of a lack of context because it's about these individuals and their legal system experiences in the aftermath of their attempted insurrection. That's fascinating too, because would we cover people of color going through the legal system in the same way? Like we're really humanizing. Oh, for absolutely. Oh my goodness. I mean, what a great question and just a great point and something that I would love if there is a way to do an analysis or something else on it, I think it's a great point. I mean, I would be absolutely stunned if we ever had seen a, you know, a person of color in any capacity receive the sorts of fond, well, tongue-in-cheek-ish, oh my goodness, can you believe this wackiness of like the QAnon shaman and his need for gluten-free meals in jail or whatever. Right. You right. know, I mean, it's very like, oh, that's our wacky uncle doing his crazy thing. Right. Kind of uh, whereas, you know, certainly in any context, if this person's demographics were different in terms of the color of their skin, they A, might not be alive, and B, if they were, the coverage would by no means be framing them as their, uh, you know, efforts to circumvent justice as, you know, some comic foibles. Right. And it's starting to minimize. There is this feeling of, although we're still talking about the gravity of it, we're minimizing it in some ways by some of the coverage you've discussed. I did, you know, OJ Simpson came to mind so oh. for me. I think uh, he was treated a little differently, but I don't even think that was the same as this. Now we're in sort of comedy sitcom. I don't know if it's quite sitcom land, but we're in, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, development in the coverage. It reminds me a little bit of a few years back when there was the affluenza coverage. Yes. Young white man who I, I believe he had either killed somebody or been involved in some horrible crime. He was charged with killing four people while drunk driving in 2013. Oh, yes. Oh, God. It was even worse than. Okay. So I had forgotten the, just the sheer horror of the, the number of people and everything else. And the judge, yeah, the judge diagnosed him, I guess, with affluenza. And the coverage of it, I mean, I certainly saw in, in social media areas and in, in, in some outlets, I definitely saw some outrage and pushback. But a lot of the coverage was, again, very like, womp, womp. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, you almost expected to hear the Arrested Development narrator over the background, <laughs> you know? And like, it was just like, okay, well... This is this is a little bit reflective of the way that we, you know, are willing to uh, sort of humanize and humorize uh, white uh, white crime uh, in a way that we definitely don't with uh, black, certainly black and brown uh, um, men and women. I want to make sure we discuss passive voice when we talk about precision. Passive voice is something that we need to recognize. Not only that your grammar instructor in high school hammered this into your head, it wasn't for no reason. There are reasons that passive voice can be insidious, really, because it can, it can mask responsibility and it can soften. I agree completely. Passive voice is a great way to mask responsibility. And it's a great way to personify things that are human made. 
when we're not talking about who does what to whom, it becomes a lot easier then to take away the impact of human and political action, blame victims at, at all times of, of all kinds of things. And it becomes a lot easier to abdicate responsibility. When we don't blame responsibility, it makes it much easier then to not talk about the policies and systems and structures that are in place that harm people and that perpetuate inequities. And it also makes it a lot harder to then talk about what needs to be done to address those inequities or to change those policies or to pressure those policymakers and ensure that they actually you know, make the kinds of changes that we need to see to make our communities more just and more equitable. So it's okay if our sentences are short and concise and follow a subject verb uh, object pattern if need be, because ultimately, if our goal is to solve some of the problems that are they're facing us, we have to know who did what to whom when, because we can't ever figure out what to do about it or how to solve it unless we're actively talking about what started the problem and who needs to be engaged to, to end it or to address it. Thank you to my guest, Pamela Mejia head of research at the Berkeley Media Studies Group, or BMSG. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.